the second of a series of talks given by physicists on the question of missile defense, the technology and desirability of it. Uh, these talks are sponsored by the Department of Physics here at UCI and also jointly by the IGCC, the Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. This is a university-wide new organization set up to promote teaching and research related to the problem of avoiding a catastrophic global war. Um, there's a rather active branch in this campus which is not only sponsoring these talks but several other talks regularly during the year, Thursday afternoons. For those of you who may be interested, there's a, a handout list of talks being offered this spring quarter, uh, talks from various perspectives on how to avoid global conflict. Um, the first talk in this series was last quarter given by Hans Professor Hans Beta. The next talk will be given two weeks from now on Tuesday, April 16th by Richard Garwin. Garwin is a physicist at IBM, fairly well known uh, with uh, some years of experience as an advisor to the government on military technology of various kinds. He is a, uh, a critic of uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative. Um, today's speaker will be introduced by Professor Fred Rhinus of our physics department here. Professor Rhinus was the founding dean of physical sciences here when the university opened. And he was, earlier in his career, he, he was during the Second World War in the theoretical division at Los Alamos uh, with, uh, at, at that time, with uh, Professor Teller, our speaker today, and Hans Beda. So I give you now Professor Rhinus. Thank you, Riley. Nuclear weapons were created in the crucible of the Second World War. The threat to the world of an insensate Hitler united men of widely different backgrounds and views whose deep and abiding concern was that Hitler would achieve nuclear weapons first and thus with them control the world. As we all know, Germany was defeated even before the first atomic bomb was detonated, and at that juncture, the attention shifted to the possible use of the bomb on Japan. Nearly half a century has gone by since those times, and now all humanity faces a threat of unprecedented proportions complicated by the existence of gigantic arsenals of nuclear weapons. Our speaker today, Professor Edward Teller, has been a participant in these developments from the very beginning. He is here today to share his thoughts with us. Professor Teller. Thank you very much. I will try, I don't know whether I will succeed, to speak relatively briefly and say a few general things that I believe everyone should be aware of. Actually, in what I'm going to say, I am very badly hampered by our rules of secrecy. You know, if somebody has a dumb idea 
about how to establish defenses, he's allowed to uh, uh, publish it. Then, the, this is wonderful, you know, I would like to see you and you don't need to see me. Uh, if somebody has a dumb idea, he can publish it. And then the uh, so-called uh, Union of Concerned Scientists can take it apart. If somebody has a clever idea, then that is classified. It is secret. And it is kept secret even if we have plenty of evidence that the Soviets are aware of it. And in, on this basis, a really intelligent discussion is almost impossible. I have been fighting secrecy for decades. I tell you as much as I'm allowed to. I don't like to break rules. I like to change rules if they are wrong. Well, for many years, some of us, very much including myself, have tried to find ways of defense against all kinds of weapons, including nuclear weapons. And in the last few years, a number of new ideas have come to the fore, which makes me optimistic that effective defense is possible and should be pursued. We know, although I'm not allowed to give you the evidence, which is horrible, that the Soviets are spending great amounts of money on defense. We are not. The idea of mutual assured destruction, that we should deter war by the threat of killing even more people, has been morally bankrupt from the beginning. It is now on its way to be technically bankrupt as well because we know that the Soviets are putting up defenses and therefore soon, within a few years, may not be deterred by our ability to retaliate. I believe that the need for defensive weapons has become extremely urgent and also extremely difficult. A hundred percent defense. I won't say it's impossible because nothing is impossible. I will say it's exceedingly unlikely. And that even one percent of nuclear missiles coming through, that they could do enormous damage. Obviously, too. Now, I want to tell you what our policy is, our official policy, and too few people know it. We are not looking for a 100% defense. We are looking for an effective defense, in the sense that it should be more easy, more feasible, less expensive. Then the countermeasures the aggressor can take 
In other words, the defensive method, weapons should cost less than the weapons to abolish them, to wipe them out. And they also should cost less than the expense to which an aggressor should have to go to swamp our defensive weapons with too great a number of aggressive weapons. If in this sense the most, the technically most effective preparation for a nuclear conflict will be the construction of defenses, then it seems to be obvious that both sides will emphasize defense. And therefore, in what we call the balance of terror today, there will be more balance and less terror. To accomplish this, as many people want to, by negotiating with the Russians, I believe is a forlorn hope. I have to ask you, when were we and when was the world more safe? In the late 1950s, when we started these negotiations, or today. I also want to tell you something not many people have noticed it. A statement by a very excellent and very honorable and very courageous Russian. I mean Sakharov. Who has made the proposals for a hydrogen bomb in the Soviet Union under Stalin, whom he later called, recognized and called, as one of the greatest criminals of this century. Well, it is documented from Sakharov's own writings when he seriously started to change his mind on working on nuclear weapons, he is now in peril of his life, in internal exile, for his opposition to the Soviet program. He started to change his mind in 1961 when uh, Khrushchev I forget, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, don't remember all the names. When Khrushchev called together nuclear scientists for a lunch and told them that they are going to end the test moratorium that they will test again. And uh, Sakharov did not sit next to him. He sent up to him a little piece of paper saying, we want to ban tests, this is a step in the wrong direction, and a few more uh, points to that effect. Khrushchev read it, put it in his pocket, and then after lunch he stood up and made an informal talk and he said, I got a note from Sakharov suggesting that we do not resume testing. 
the only way to deal with the West is by hiding what we are doing, by cheating them. Sakharov is an excellent scientist, but if I would listen to him in matters of foreign policy and how to deal with the Americans, I wouldn't be secretary of the Communist Party, I would be a slob. This is as much as, as far as I can remember, more or less literal quote from Sakharov. To negotiate with people who go into negotiations with these precepts does not seem to be particular because at present we are talking about they are talking about negotiating on planned weapons, on ideas, on what's going on in laboratories, and to make to subject, subject that to real checks looks like a completely hopeless enterprise. The Soviets take a peculiar point of view. They say we must not militarize space. They are doing it. They have an anti-satellite weapon, we don't. What they obviously want is to keep the monopoly on defense, which they now have. The very numerous people in this country who object to defensive weapons do so to a great extent, primarily on the basis it will be too expensive and it won't work anyway. If it is an ineffective way of spending our funds, why are the Soviets doing it? And why are they so violently opposed in all wasting money in a similar manner? Now, this about generalities. I can talk to you about a few specific the best-known name for the whole enterprise is Star Wars. In the proposal made by Reagan on the 23rd of March, 1983, Star Wars, space, anything of the kind, was not even mentioned. The main point that he made was a statement which is obviously correct and to which everybody agrees that we must try to deter war. I would say not only nuclear war, any kind of war. I lived through two of them and they are horrible enough without the nuclear destruction. Ten million victims in World War Two and fifty million in, in World War One and 50 million in World War II. I count only the dead. But then Reagan went on 
and pose the question, isn't it better to save lives than to avenge them? We know that the people in the Kremlin are exceedingly cautious. They may be deterred by the threat of retaliation. They may also be deterred, be deterred by showing them that their attack is not apt to succeed because we have strong defenses. They don't want to irritate us. They want to wipe out the United States as a power that counts in the development of the world. And anything less than that it is not their purpose they will not undertake. I believe deterrence by defense is a sensible thing. Now, as to Star Wars, as to role of, of, the, of space, I am for using space in one respect, and one respect only. That is to observe and to see when missiles are launched and how many, and as much about it as possible to keep observation posts in space is a much lesser enterprise than to put weapons in space. And even that is very difficult because it's expensive to put something in space and it is cheap to shoot them down, for instance, by lasers. I therefore propose that we do what is necessary. Put observation posts in space. Make them as difficult to destroy as ever possible. Put for each obvious observation station ten sleepers, more tightly packed, harder to detect, which go into action if the actual observation station is destroyed. And then put decoys, not for the observation stations, but for the sleepers, which are already hard to see, and which can be marked up at a very low cost. And for each observation station, I want 10 sleepers and at least a thousand decoys. All this will be expensive. And when we are through with this exercise, then the people advocating defense by deploying things in space will probably have to shut up. I'm not sure of this. Somebody may have ingenious ideas how to, how to keep things in space. I don't have any. I'm not advocating it. The objectors focus in on that, and the union of so-called concerned scientists 
have written how many battle stations it would take, and then they admitted that they made a little mistake by a factor 100 in esti estimating them. Actually, it can be done much more cheaply than what they suggest. But even so, I think, it is too expensive. We are trying to destroy nuclear rockets when they are launched, distinguish them from decoys while they are flying in space, notice when the atmosphere filters out the light decoys as they re-enter the atmosphere, and then defend in the final phase. People emphasize that we should destroy this way at least 99% of the missiles. I claim that this would be nice to do. It won't happen soon. It may never happen. If we could destroy 80% on paper, then the Kremlin won't know whether that means 80% or 50% or 95%. I think that may be quite sufficient for deterrence. If we do it in an effective way, so that just by multiplying their attacking rockets, they will have to pay much more than we have to pay by multiplying our defenses. And that is the official point of view. Now the question is, what, how should we do this? With nuclear weapons, with conventional weapons, many people in our administration say it must be conventional because nuclear is a bad word. I say, the right distinction is the distinction between a weapon of mass destruction, which not only does an immense amount of damage, material damage, but kills people in their millions, and could easily kill half the population of the United States. That that is wrong, whether it is done by nuclear means or by biological means, and the Soviets are working on, working on biological warfare and using it. That is what should be opposed. Any weapon that is not directed toward mass destruction, but is a surgical instrument directed against the attacking weapon, that is what we should do in the most effective way possible. Now beams, directed beams, including lasers, essentially death rays, light beams of extreme intensity, very sharp definition, so they don't lose their power when they go big distances. This is a very promising way. But to neglect nuclear explosives completely, is probably a mistake. Assume, for instance, that we talk about terminal defense. Defense after the Soviet missile has re-entered 
or atmosphere. If you try now to, this, to attack and destroy these weapons by impact or by laser, it can be done, but it's expensive. And furthermore, on the first contact with the skin of the incoming missile, you may get a megaton, a million ton TNT equivalent explosion from the attacking missile that could do very great damage, even if it has not reached its target. If instead we use, as our, in our defensive rocket, a hundred ton nuclear explosive, and it goes off one mile over your head, you will hardly notice it. But it will be cheaper, it's a very effective and light source of energy. And it sends out neutrons that penetrate the core of the incoming missile and will prevent it from exploding with a million tons of TNT. What I have to tell you is that we are in an early stage of the development of the SDI, of the Strategic Defense Initiative. We have a great number of ideas. Some of them will work, some of them won't. We don't know which. We have to do a lot more research, but I think that in a few years we could begin to deploy not complete defenses, but at least some defenses which will be effective in that it will be harder to overcome them than to deploy them. And that is our immediate goal. Now, of the various ways, and there are more than half a dozen, there are a dozen really promising approaches. Of all these, I would like to mention one which I very particularly like and in which you might be interested. It is the X-ray laser, the same thing as a laser. But instead of a wavelength as long, comparable to the size of a living cell, it has a wavelength maybe one hundredth of that of visible light. It could be, I cannot predict that it will be, but it could be extremely effective in defense. It could be, and it probably will be used, in destroying satellites. It has, with practical certainty, a most important scientific application, purely scientific. And that I think we are going to have maybe in two years, maybe even sooner. May I see a show of hands? How many of you are familiar, while I'm drinking this 
water. You may put up your hand if you are familiar with the word hologram. The majority knows it. For those who don't, it is a three-dimensional picture. You can take a photograph and you can see the object in three dimensions. What you, what you need for it is a laser. What you can't get this way with visible light or the kind of light that we can use now is the detailed structure of a living cell because that needs a resolution much finer than what we can accomplish now. We can get exceedingly fine resolution with electron microscopes, but they never can give you anything except a surface picture. You can get the shape of a cell, but you cannot see a small virus attacking the nucleus of a living cell. With X-ray lasers, you can get a resolution 100 times finer so that you can see objects 100 the size that are visible now. And so there would be a real quantum jump in the development of biology and medicine. And what will come of it, I don't know. But it is a byproduct of the technology that we are developing with hopes for defense. And the millions of dollars that are spent on defense, apart from making war less likely, which is our main purpose, is with practical certainty going to introduce a revolution into biology in the direction of more knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the case. If we have a defense, we are not safe. Because if the Soviets her methods to shoot down our X-ray lasers, which have to be deployed outside the atmosphere, popped up when the attack comes. If they can shoot them down before they can act, then you may have the, a sword, but he will have the better sword. American science and American technology is supposed to be ahead of Soviet science and technology. And the statement is true. In consumer goods, in much of science, in agricultural science, in biology, The statement is not true. 
in military technology. For instance, the best metal for weapons is not steel, but titanium. It has the greatest strength for a given weight by a considerable margin. The Soviets know how to work with titanium. We don't. It's a long and difficult development. And there are a number of cases where I can say that Soviet technology is ahead of us. Our best ideas of X-ray lasers came from the Soviet literature eight years ago. Then the Soviets clamped the lid of secrecy on publishing more about X-ray lasers. And we have indirect evidence that in this very important field, they are ahead of us. At the same time, the majority of American scientists and the majority of the scientists in the free world don't want to work on weapons, except if there is a war on. Now, I tell you, if it is worthwhile to work for winning a war, it certainly is worthwhile to work for preventing a war. And by deploying, by finding out what are the best defensive weapons, making them better than the aggressive weapons, and making them better than the defense weapons deployed and developed by the Soviets. That is the way to prevent war. Because we don't want war. We want peace much more than we want power. And the Soviets have shown in Africa, in Afghanistan, in Central America, that they want power badly enough not to shrink from war that has, for instance, in Afghanistan produced millions of refugees. The work of people like Hans Bethe and like Richard Garvey and their criticism is needed and would be welcome if they would be constructive pieces of criticism. But where my friends and I have spent years in working on defensive weapons, they have spent as many days looking at them. And then discovered some of the obvious mistakes in the wrong proposals that are publishable. We are under a propaganda attack from the Soviet Union, aided by disinformation from our own media and from many of our own scientists. Although, while I am ready to believe that our scientists don't want to mislead us, they just don't want to think hard about weapons.
some of our media have clearly and obviously misled us. These are the difficult conditions under which our present debate is proceeding. I would like to conclude with the definition of an expert, which is due to the greatest physicist, Niels Bohr. An expert is an individual who through his own painful experience has found out all the mistakes that one can commit in a very narrow field. I claim that in SDI there are no experts, certainly not among the concerned scientists, and not even among the real ingenious young workers from whom I learned a lot. It is our job to find these mistakes and to correct them without too much pain, without the pain of actually getting into a conflict. The best effort of the American scientists and of the scientists of our allies with whom we must cooperate, I think will suffice to prevent a third world war. Thank you very much. Dr. Teller has said that he would be happy to take questions, but uh, on one condition, that they be short. He specifically asks that you not to make speeches and give you extensive like, uh, proclamations of your own view, but he's happy to take critical questions, rude questions, polite questions, questions of any kind, if they are short. I can only say two things, that an atomic device has a tremendous energy concentration. It's not the only way. It is the best way. There is no question about that. The other point I can say is that X-ray lasers exist not on paper, but in reality. Three weeks ago, even that statement I could not have made. I would not have been allowed to make. We now progressed at least to the point where I can tell you that when talking about X-ray lasers, I talk about reality. And that is why I say that the biological consequences will be available in a short time.
secrecy has been with us since the Second World War. There is no progress toward loosening it up, except here and there to a small measure. I believe that it's an extremely important point. It should be attacked in every logical and legal manner. I once gave a talk on intraphysical society, and somebody asked from the audience whether I will agree to classify Ellsberg as a hero for violating secrecy. My answer was that he is guilty of a crime and of a misdemeanor. The crime was to classify gossip as secret. The misdemeanor was to sell it to the New York Times. What about nuclear winter? Sagan is an excellent popularizer and almost as good a propagandist. His accuracy is a little less good. You know what the idea is, that in a nuclear war so much smoke would be produced that the temperature would plummet and we all would freeze to death. I am familiar with a very careful study of a man from, I think, Brookhaven by the name of Sess. C-E-S-S, -S, who reproduced in his calculations the results not of Sagan, because he has none, but of his collaborators who believed his general statement and tried to make calculations around. There are many things that have been omitted in the calculations, but there are no numerical mistakes in it. They are reproduced. And when Sagan says that there are no objections to his calculation, it only means that he knows how to and his friends know how to add two and two, even if they have to do it very many times. One important factor that he has neglected, let me mention it, is he has assumed that the smoke will rise to the tropopause, to the point in the atmosphere, maybe eight miles above our heads or thereabouts, where the temperature is lowest. that there the smoke will be heated by the sunlight and stabilized there, and stay there, because in the tropopause there is very little moisture, and it won't rain out. The question how much of it would rain out before the tropopause is reached has not been discussed.
the moisture in the relevant regions, the water content is 10,000 times as great as the smoke content. And the assumption that it will not rain out is not warranted. But the point of this is even different. Assume that the rest of the hypothesis of Sagan is correct and that the smoke will rise to that point in the exaggerated quantities that he has assumed that will indeed heat up the region around the tropopause and make the surface of the earth colder. The result will be in the heating of the higher atmosphere a greater water vapor content in those regions and that will have a greenhouse effect that will compensate, you know, not allow infrared radiation to escape, that will compensate the lack of the reduction in sunlight. Seth made reasonable and his collaborators made reasonable, more reasonable assumptions about the consequences and found that instead of strong cooling, a small amount of heating is more probable. I'm not going to tell you that this small amount of heating is significant, and I will not counter the nuclear winter by predicting the nuclear summer. <laughs> I will tell you that Sagan, in this case, does not know what he's talking about. as a very interesting and a hopeful component. Whether it's crucial, I don't know. It may fail as a defensive weapon, and the defense may succeed. The question of aiming with the needed accuracy appears to be relatively easy. The great difficulty is the quality of the X-ray laser. And we have clear evidence that it exists, and I'm not allowed to tell you how fast we are making progress toward it, but I am telling you that Bete and Garvin and a number of European scientists could greatly help us in making either making better lasers, better X-ray lasers, or else in proving that they cannot be made in the quality needed for defense, and that we should look in other directions, and there are quite a few other directions. 
user. If we believe that everybody wants peace, isn't it clear that everybody would benefit? The other, it would serve the other side as an opposition to the defense. It would be an aid to the offense. And we ought to have these platforms not as an absolute necessity, but as a tremendous advantage. And I would be willing to commit great amounts of money to make them secure against attack, or not necessarily secure, but if not secure, then quickly enough replaceable. I understand. Uh, there are some classified statements, which I cannot make, that completely contradicts what you say. A weaker point, however, I can make. It is true that if we have observation posts that might give us early enough warning to fire our missiles before any Soviet missiles can arise. This so-called fire on warning is a strongly destabilizing situation. I would prefer to have defense which would defend our missiles so that we don't need to fire on warning. I also want to defend our populations even more than I want to defend our missiles. We may practice by developing the easier thing, namely the defense of selected points. And when we have engineering practice, then we think about how to defend Los Angeles. You might be opposed to that, you might find Los Angeles only a nuisance. <laughs> but, you know, I'm broad-minded enough so that I even would like to defend Los Angeles. Uh, I'll make sure we feed Dr. Tal lunch. We may take only perhaps a couple more questions. Uh, but there are no ladies. No ladies. Oh, there is one. Yes, yes, the lady.
defense is 90% effective, what number would it enter U.S. territory of Soviet weapons? I do not know. If SDI is 90% effective, and if they fire against us 5,000 weapons, then 500 of them would arrive. If they want to prevent our retaliation, and I think we should retain retaliatory force for quite a while, certainly until the defense becomes much better than I can even imagine now. Quite a few of these weapons, maybe all of them, would have to be fired against our retaliatory weapons. And the result may be that none may be left over to attack Los Angeles. But the real purpose in the whole exercise is to prevent the Soviets from firing anything because they are not certain on the outcome, they are not gamblers, they are as power-hungry, I believe they have proved that, as Hitler was, but in sharp contrast to Hitler, they are not gamblers, and unless they are sure that they will succeed, they will not attack us. That, I believe, is the right way and the humane way of deterrence. Let's take one more question, perhaps. Uh, there's another lady for you. If you shoot down an incoming weapon, as we well may do, with a hundred ton nuclear explosion, and if we use 10,000 of these in defense, there would be no fallout on the United States in the neighborhood where you have made these explosions because these hot air masses would rise. There will be fallout distributed around the world. This widely distributed fallout would turn out to be maybe 1%, maybe 3% as strong as the radiation that you get from cosmic rays, anyway. Now, here is my good friend, Fred Reines, who has been studying cosmic rays, and he has been negligent in his duty to prevent these cosmic rays from reaching the Earth, even though they are more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Worse than that, you know who is most exposed to cosmic rays? The airplane hostesses, not the pilots, because they spend much less time in the air. Now, our airlines 
had a policy that if a hostess gets night, she should be grounded. And the hostesses did not like it and filed suit and won. Now this, I think, may be even right. But it is inconsistent. The cosmic rays to which the hostesses are exposed are, is greater than the officially announced maximum permissible dose, which is so conservative that in actual fact the hostesses won't be hurt. But if a hostess becomes pregnant before she knows that she has become pregnant, the embryo will be irradiated. And radiation is much more dangerous in the, at the time when a cell divides. And therefore, young people are more sensitive to radiation than ancient people like myself. But embryos are very much more sensitive. And if one pays any attention to radiation, then that rule of grounding the hostesses made sense. Somehow we are not quite consistent in everything that we are doing. But that should be hardly news to you. Thank you very much.